Well, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 3. As you're doing that, one of the great military exploits that has been studied through the centuries by military tacticians, I just like saying that word, tacticians, um, was something that happened about 1,200 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, the Greeks had laid siege to the city of Troy for 10 years with no success. Uh, the story is uh, immortalized by the ancient writer Homer and in the Odyssey, written about 800 years before the birth of Christ. And the Greeks, in laying siege to attack the city of Troy, 10 years, that's a long time, and nothing was working, nothing was happening. And so the Greeks constructed a massive wooden horse and hid a select kind of A-team force inside this wooden structure. Now, the Greeks pretended to give up on their wanting to attack the city of Troy, and they pretended to sail away, to depart, to leave. And the city of Troy, the Trojans, uh, looked at this massive horse that the Greeks had built and saw it as really something that maybe was to one some god or something and really saw it as maybe a trophy. So they took this wooden horse and they took it into the city. And that night, the Greek force that was inside this wooden horse uh, crept out and they opened the gates for the rest of the Greek army, which had sailed back in the middle of the night. And the Greeks entered and destroyed the city of Troy, ending the war. And you know the phrase when somebody says, well, that's a Trojan horse. That's the story of that military uh, exploit. It was a masterful military deception by the Greek army. Well, the Bible does talk about deception. The Bible talks about a deceiver. In fact, Jesus talked about the specific deceiver that is called the devil, Satan. And in John 8, 44, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders said this to them in the context. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. I'm trying to remember what uh, translation or paraphrase uh, had this that said that when he, when he speaks, lying is his native language. And the Bible uh, calls him the devil, Satan. There's other names that are given, but Satan is taken from the Hebrew transliteration. That just means the, uh, the word in Hebrew is they basically anglicized it and made it an English word, means adversary. That's what Satan is. He is the adversary. And the reason that's important in John 8, 44, without getting time, doesn't allow us to get into too many of this, but Jesus affirmed the existence of the devil, Jesus affirmed the existence of Satan. And you know from uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4, 
that we won't look at, but Jesus encountered literally the devil himself when he was in the wilderness, when he was praying and fasting. And when we talk about the deceiver, Satan, it's always helpful, and I know I've used this quote many times, but I always find that C.S. Lewis's counsel is always helpful as we approach talking about Satan or demons. C.S. Lewis says in our approach, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, humans, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, ignore them, pretend they don't exist, myth. The other is to believe and to feel an an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. In other words, to be almost obsessive with the subject. Well, we're not going to be obsessive, but we're not going to ignore the fact that the Bible does address and talk about a real enemy that's, that exists. And the Bible affirms and talks and, uh, and calls this one Satan or the devil. And this morning, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, I want us today, the title of today's message is Five Lies Satan Loves to Tell. Now, I know some of you are squeamish at snakes, and I tried to get the least grotesque snake uh, and it won't be up for long, <laughs> but, uh, but I like that graphic there. And I do know, technically, the Bible doesn't say anything about an apple. People say the apple, but hey, it's a graphic, okay? So the fruit of the tree, all right? But we want to talk about five lies that Satan loves to tell. Now, just before we look into the passage, and I do hope that you have some means of writing some of these things down, taking notes. I find that when I do that, I'm way more engaged in listening. Uh, I know some of you had a photographic memory, and that's wonderful. I don't. Uh, so if you use your phone to take notes on or you write something down, these are very simple as we walk through uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 5. But Genesis 3 is one of those, probably one of the most vitally important chapters uh, in the Bible. It is the foundation really, of everything that follows Genesis chapter 3. Without it, little else in Scripture would make sense. Genesis 3 explains the condition of the universe and the state of humanity, our condition. explains why in this world we have so many problems, Genesis 3. It explains the human depravity, our dilemma. explains why we need a Savior, why we need rescuing. Genesis 3 explains what God has been doing and is doing in redemptive or human history. Genesis 3 is very pivotal. And in fact, Genesis 3.15, we have the first prophecy of the Messiah that was to come after Adam and Eve's sin. Now, one other note just to make... uh, kind of just a sidebar here, is that in Genesis 3, we have the talking serpent. Many would point to the talking serpent as evidence that this account is mythical. It's a fairy tale. It's make-believe. But it shouldn't be any surprise, if you read the Bible, that Satan can manifest himself and masquerade himself in many and multiple different forms. Satan is a master of disguises, 
In fact, in Paul's uh, letter to, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that Satan is able to masquerade himself and present himself as an angel of light. So I just think we do well to take this scripture at face value in its literal form. Satan apparently had the ability to take on the physical form of a serpent. And of course, we know in Revelation 12, 9, he's referred to as that great serpent. So that's a picture that is through, uh, throughout the Word of God. And as we walk through Genesis 3, 1 through 5, there's just one more note I want to make, and that is to talk about and reveal Satan's strategy that I'm sure you're aware, you are aware of. His strategy that we see here in direct temptation of Eve, and ultimately Adam was drawn into it, is really no different than the strategy that he uses in other places. Uh, Sometime, and I think when I preached on Matthew 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness and had that encounter with Satan, uh, I talked a little bit about this. And so, as you compare his modus operandi, you see that he is fairly consistent in his methods and what he does. Uh, Jesus said in that passage we read in John 8.44 that Satan is a liar. There is no truth within him. And that's important to be reminded of. As I said, he appears to bring truth. That passage I alluded to in 2 Corinthians 11, where he masquerades himself as an angel of light. Uh, His motive was to appear to be helpful to Eve. That was his motive, to give her some help, to help her, to help her and Adam to be that angel of light, when in reality... His motive was to utterly destroy them, and his motive is to utterly destroy the work of God, pretending, whether it's them or us, to have our best interests in mind. He does not. He is a liar, and he's been a liar from the beginning. So look with me as we walk through five lies Satan loves to tell. Number one, lie number one is this, is, and again, these are just from Genesis uh, 3, 1 through 5, is the first lie we see here is this, that you can't really trust God. You can't really trust God. We see this in verse 1 of Genesis 3. And I believe I have that. I believe that's the NLT there because it says, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? I mean, God is so unfair, isn't he? He's the ultimate cosmic killjoy. He does not want you to achieve your full human potential. You can't really trust him. He's unfair. And in fact, according to verses 2 through 4, he's either ignorant or at worst, he's dishonest. Look what he says in verse 2 through 4. And the woman said to the serpent, "'We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden,' But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Notice what the serpent, Satan, is saying to the woman, you're not really going to die. I mean, come on now. You can't believe that. God isn't going to do that. 
I mean, the implication is that either God really doesn't know, because Satan, again, what is he doing? He's appearing to give some insight that Eve doesn't have, that God is either ignorant, he doesn't know what he's talking about, or he's just really a liar, because he's not really serious. You're not going to take him literally, are you, Eve? You know, God, the picture sometimes we uh, see in the modern modern Christianity and the presentation of some people and the way they have in mind of God is kind of this benevolent grandpa. I'm a grandfather. Many of you are grandfathers. And this benevolent grandpa whose bark is worse than his bite. But in the reality, not only will he let them do whatever they want, but he will actually give them little candy and little rewards and take them to McDonald's and because he's not really that serious. That's the way people have a view of God. He's unfair. He's dishonest. And verse 5 implies that you can't trust him because he's selfish. Verse 5, for God knows, this is Satan speaking, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. What's the implication? Is that God really doesn't, you know, he's really very petty. He doesn't want to share in his deity. He doesn't want you to have his privileges, his wisdom. He's selfish. He's petty. He's jealous. He wants to keep it all for himself. He's only looking out for his own interests. You cannot trust God. In other words, God is holding out on you, Eve. If you knew what I knew, then you would realize that God is really holding out on you. This idea that he wants your best, this idea that he works all things together for good, come on now. If he really wanted that, why would he do anything to hinder your freedom? Why would he do anything to hinder you discovering what's best for you, Eve, I do, Eve. I know what's best for you, and you can trust me. You can't trust God. That's lie number one. You cannot trust God. So if you can't trust God, then secondly, you cannot trust anything that he says. You can't really trust God's word. I go back to verse one. Did God really say... You know what's interesting there? I had it towards the end, but I'll just throw this out there. just kind of a little observation. It's interesting that essentially in the very beginning of biblical redemptive history, chapter 3, where really the storyline uh, kicks in, it's interesting that at the very beginning there was an assault on the Word of God. Right? And when you read to the very last chapter in Revelation, and you read in chapter 22, we won't turn to it, but you go to the very last chapter in Revelation 22, verse 18, what is the final warning the Word of God gives? Do not add to this book, and do not take away from this book. The very beginning, it's the assault on the Word of God, and at the very end, It's a warning about not to assault the veracity, the truthfulness of God's Word. Do you see that? 
So why is there always the attack, even right here, did God really say? You can't trust God. We identify God's Word today in our generation by the Bible, the Scriptures, that we believe is the Word of God. We don't believe that it contains the Word of God. It is the Word of God. You know, sometimes the false idea that the Bible contains the Word of God, so we have to demythologize it. We have to defang it of anything supernatural. You know, Thomas Jefferson, he's quite popular these days, by the way, right? Thomas Jefferson had what you may have heard me or others say, you know, called the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian in a biblical sense. He was a Christian in the sense of a philosophical sense. I'm not sure he was born again. There's no evidence of that. And he appreciated the teachings of Jesus. But he really couldn't, he didn't like anything that referred to miracles or supernatural. So he basically, as a hobby, took his copy of the Gospels and literally with the scissors cut out everything that Jesus said, kind of might we, we would call it the red letter part, right? And anything that had to do with the supernatural or the miraculous or his deity or anything like that, he just eliminated and he pasted it in his own little book and that eventually was called the Jefferson Bible. You know, we may not do that, literally, Sometimes we do that in experience, don't we? You can't really trust the Word of God. We're not interested in Jefferson's Bible. We're interested in God's Bible, God's Word. You know, people will say, well, you know, there's so many uncertainties in the Bible. You know, as God really said, you know, it's a matter of somebody's opinion. You know, it's all... It all depends on how it's interpreted. I mean, there are so many contradictions in the Bible. I mean, you hear that all the time. And usually it's people that can't identify any of these things. And all for our purposes this morning is just to look at this lie number two at the very, very beginning that Satan uh, shows us his hand, so to speak, by questioning the truthfulness and the reliability of the Word of God. Ravi Zacharias, who went to be with the Lord, I guess it's been a few months now, tells this story and gives an application that I thought is fitting here in talking about the veracity, the reliability of the Word of God. Ravi Zacharias tells a story of a young man defending his PhD, his doctoral dissertation, before a panel of uh, academics at the university And he was reprimanded for the number of allusions that he had made in his dissertation that were not based upon any actual facts or footnotes, but it was just hearsay evidence. And the faculty challenged him on the weakness of such a defense of his paper, this Ph.D. dissertation. He jokingly said... Well, hey, just because something is written down doesn't make it more certain, does it? And the chairperson had a brilliant comeback. He said, all right then, I just want you to know that we will be granting you the degree, but it won't be in writing. You can just take our word for it. 
Well, the man quickly corrected and provided the documentation of his dissertation. Here's what Ravi Zacharias says with that story. He said, over the span of life, the Word, the Word of God can be tested time and time again, and its truths will stand tall as our culture's fascination with the subjective proves itself to be hollow and false. By contrast, the biblical documents have withstood the most scrutinizing analysis ever imposed upon any manuscript and have emerged with compelling authenticity and authority. No other ancient literature demonstrates such a high degree of accuracy. Yes, repeatedly, the Bible rises to outlive its pallbearers. You can trust God's Word, but Satan says you can't trust God's Word. That's slide number two. But look at number three. Now, the first two, the first two lies, your spirit will be wounded and discouraged, but these next three lies will kill you. Look at number three. Lie number three is that there is no such thing as God's judgment. There's no real accountability. How does we see this? Verse four, when he says, you will not surely die. She says, God said, do not do this. Satan says, oh, you're not going to really die. Nothing's going to happen again. He's just, he's just bluffing with you. He's just threatening you. There's really no consequences to disobeying this God. You know, throughout church history, the church time and time again has been challenged on the idea that, or not really the idea, on the truthfulness of a God who is a, also a God of judgment. The Bible does speak about God who is holy, but he is also a God of justice. There's an idea that has been peddled throughout church history called universalism. It's the idea that there is ultimate reconciliation in the end. That everyone from Judas Iscariot, Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, every, every worker of evil, ultimately in the end, is going to be brought into the family of God and reconciled by the blood of Christ. That's called universalism. And the Bible just does not teach that. And think about the implication of that. There's really not going to be any consequence. There's not going to be any judgment. The Bible does speak about hell. Jesus talks about hell. He talks about an eternal damnation. The Bible talks about the judgment of God. The Bible is very clear on that. But Satan, the lie is there's really no such thing as God's judgment. There's really no such thing. That's why reincarnation is always kind of appealing. Because if you, you eventually can just get multiple chances to rid yourself of your bad karma. If you don't get it right, hey, you'll go around to spin another time. There's no judgment. You're just in this endless cycle. What about those who You've read about so-called near-death experiences. You've heard me say, and I won't get into it now, but I'm very skeptical of all the, what are often called the heaven travel books. 
the heaven tourist books. But there are some that are even beyond the pale of some of those that have become, uh, you know, within the pale of evangelicalism of people who have had these experiences. There are those who have had near-death experience. And one thing you see in a lot of these is always this great light at the end of the tunnel. And there's these feelings of joy and peace and and just this wonderful warmness of this great light. You never hear anything about judgment. You never hear, ever hear any consequence of being thrust into eternity without Christ. Be suspect and understand that behind some of these things is the serpent's old lie is there's not really going to be any consequence for your sin and disobedience. You can run the red lights and violate the commandments of God and nothing really in the end is going to happen. It's okay, Satan says. Relax. Rid yourself of all this uptight fundamentalism. It is just hindered. Remember what Karl Marx said, that religion is the opiate of the society. It's the drug to induce them into this mass hysteria. We need to rid ourselves of these ancient concepts. We need to be liberated to discover, here's a phrase I hate, my own truth. Don't you love that? Well, that's your truth. That's my truth. I have embraced my own truth. Robbie Zacharias said something. I crossed it out, but I'll read it. He says, we have a right to believe whatever we want, but not everything we believe is right. Lie number four. Satan says, you can be God. Eve, listen, I've been kind of, this is really great, Eve. I know something you don't. In fact, you know, God, he's unfair, he's unjust, he's selfish, you can't really trust him, so he's not going to let you in on this little secret, but you can be God. Look at verse 5, for God knows. You see the implication? God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and what does it say? You will be like God. It's interesting that what Satan is pretending to offer was precisely what he tried to obtain and couldn't. It was his downfall. You will be like God. Satan knew from personal experience that God tolerates no rivals. There's no multiple seating on the throne. Isaiah 42, 8, it's not on the screen. I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory. I will not give to another nor my praise to a carved image. God yields his rightful sovereign place to no one. Now, you know, the application I gave, I won't spend much time in it, is naturally we know of those aberrant religious groups that teach that you can become a god. Mormonism, that's really part and parcel of their doctrine that's baked in, and that's the ultimate 
salvation is to attain godhood, but ladies, sorry, it's only for men. But your hope is to be eternally pregnant with your male gods' uh, other multiple wives. Now you say, well, you just made that up. Well, I, I show you Mormon teaching that that's what they teach. And of course, you know, there's the Oprah effect on our spirituality. Many of Oprah's so-called book club contributions peddle this new spirituality. And you know, Oprah is very effective because she has a mixed bag of Christian jargon and tradition mixed in with a lot of other stuff. It's a hodgepodge that doesn't reflect the Bible. Without getting into it, one of the big books that she peddled was by Eckhart Tolle, T-O-L-L-E, called A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. But in that, he teaches about you attaining your godness. One of the phrases that you see peddled a lot is attaining the Christ consciousness. Jesus wasn't really God. He just was a higher Zen master who attained the Christ consciousness. And so this writer, Eckhart Tolle, says that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he wasn't necessarily just saying him. He was saying that we all could be the way, the truth, and the life. But I think the real subtlety, as I was, as I typically do sometimes on Saturday nights, I don't really sleep great on Saturday nights because I'm going through my head this message. And the Lord just reminded me that there's a much more subtle danger, it's not even in my notes, of this idea and appeal that you'll be like God. It was an appeal to remove God as the sovereign God. That you are the determiner of your own destiny. That you are the master of your own fate. That you are a God. And this idea that there is a sovereign, almighty God that determines, that chooses, that elects. No, you. You are granted with an ultimate free will. Nobody can tell you or control you of what to do. You determine your destiny. Don't confuse human responsibility with some time of ultimate autonomous free will that we have. Man does not have ultimate free will. We are ruled, we are controlled, we are predestined by a sovereign God. Those are Bible words, my friends. And so the real appeal is don't fall into this sovereign God thing. You, you're a God. You choose your own course. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but what? In the end is death. And the last lie, number five, is that there is 
there's a secret knowledge. There's a special secret knowledge, Eve, that is available to you. And I know what this secret knowledge is. You see, the implication goes back to the undermining of not only the character of God, but the reliability of God's Word. That there's a secret knowledge. This was, if, if, if you've been familiar or walking through with us on, in Colossians, all ten of you, um, all right, that's a, that's a joke. Um, some of you will get it, some of you won't. Um, but in Colossians 2, look at this verse, and I have it from the New Living Translation. This was the whole heart of Paul's letter to the Colossians. In chapter 2, they are being inundated with false ideas about God, salvation, spirituality. Notice what Paul says. He says, do not let anyone condemn you. I like the, some other translations that say, don't let anyone cheat you of your reward. But don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, that there were those that taught that angels could be additional mediaries, intermediaries to uh, attain a higher level of spirituality. Jesus was a good first step, but there was, there was more. There was this secret knowledge that you can attain to. He says, beware about people insisting on pious self-denial the worship of angels, saying that they've had visions about these things. There are those within some parts, some parts of the charismatic movement that are just dangerous, that are just dangerous, that are peddling visions and prophecies that have no connectivity to the Word of God. Be careful. Notice what he says about these people. Their sinful minds have made them proud. See, that's the wonderful appeal about this secret knowledge, cults. In other words, what's behind some of these groups? And I'm not going to name them and go through that. Is that we have something that nobody else has. Some Say, for thousands of years, the truthfulness has, has been lost until the arrival of this man or this woman. And they have been used by God to return us back to the original teachings of the Bible. But you have to only get it through us. Nobody else has this secret knowledge. Now, what is the appeal to that? Aren't I special? I'm, I'm really special that I know this special secret information. That I have this special secret truth of God and the Bible that all of those thousands in the churches are just blind and lost. But our little group of 12 people that meet in somebody's basement, that have a cool website, 
We, we have the truth. Wow, man, I feel special. Do you see how that appeals to the human heart of pride? You see the, the draw of that? And who is it coming from? It's coming from the one whose pride led him to be exiled forever from the presence or, the hev- or heaven. What does Paul say going that last verse in Colossians verse 19? He says such people are not, what, connected to Christ. Oh, you know, I know they're a little weird. Oh, I know they're a little eccentric. Oh, I know he teaches things that he claims were in a dream or vision. But, you know, hey, he's a good guy. The Word of God says they are not connected to Christ. God does not stutter. God is not confused. And so this this lie, this secret knowledge... The Satan is, is appealing to Eve. That's not even to mention the deception people get drawn into with fortune-telling, palm-reading, astrology. Quit reading your morning astrology report. If you hadn't figured out, that's like a lot of ras- it, not a, that's like professional wrestling, which I love that name, professional wrestling. It is the ultimate fake news. And the Bible clearly forbids that. Sorry, you uh, Hulk Hogan fans. Witchcraft, seances, crystals, do you see the appeal that that makes to the human heart? That there's something special and there's a secret path that I can get insight and knowledge that I don't have to be limited to the Word of God. The implication is that we don't have it all. And I realize there's the Spirit gives us application and to His Word. I, I understand that. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that. But the idea of something more, Paul refuted in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he says, all Scripture is given by inspiration. I like the NIV if you have the NIV because it literally says what that word inspiration means. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's what inspiration is. And it's profitable, is is valuable for doctrine, for reproof. That's what James says, that the man looks into the Word, into the word of God. It's like looking into a mirror that gives him his true reflection. The Word of God reproves us, corrects us for instruction in what? Righteousness that the man, the woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we know Colossians 2.10 says that we are complete in Christ. It's not talking about a completeness in justification, but the completeness of the Word of God as God's means in sanctification, that there is a completeness that the Word of God is. Everything that we need, according to Ephesians 1.3, all the fullness of God, every spiritual blessing in Christ, has been given to us in Christ, Ephesians 1.3, 
Everything we need is in Christ, and everything that we need to work out this salvation, not work for it, but apply the Word of God, is given to us in a completed record of God's Word and God's will. We don't need to be trailing off and appealing and chasing after secret things that people want to peddle as additions or compliments to the Word of God. The only effective response to Satan's lies is God's truth. And we need to be careful and knowing that what Jesus said in John 8, that Satan is a liar, he doesn't speak truth, and by the Holy Spirit and by the Spirit-inspired Word of God, God has given us the tools that we need to navigate spiritual error. Because there is spiritual error. I may have shared this story before, but it's worth reading again. It's an old Native American legend about a little boy who was walking down a mountain path where he came up on a rattlesnake. And this, little, or this rattlesnake, this serpent, had grown very old and asked if the boy would carry him to the mountaintop so he could behold one last sunset before he died. And the boy said, no, Mr. Rattlesnake, uh, if I pick you up, you're going to bite me and I will die. The rattlesnake promised not to bite the little boy, and so the little boy believed him and cautiously picked it up and carried him all the way up to the mountain. There they watched the sunset together, and it was beautiful. And then the snake asked the boy to take it home and carefully carried it down the mountain Stopping at his own home on the way, the little boy went in and gave the old snake some food and water and a place to sleep. And then in the morning, they awoke, and the boy picked up the snake to carry it back to its own home where the snake would die. And when they arrived at the old snake's home, the boy began to set it down when suddenly the snake reared back and bit him, plunging his fangs into the boy's arm. Why did you do that? The boy shrieked. He was in pain. He's, he was in shock. He said, why did you do that? I'm going to die now. And the old snake said with a smile, you knew what I was when you picked me up. Don't pick up Satan's lies. Trust the Word of God. It's reliable. It's true. And the consequences to Adam and Eve embracing the lies of the enemy were pretty severe. Let's pray.